Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and actually I'm introducing myself this week. So we are on, I don't know, part eight or nine or something of Galatians. Uh, we're looking at the last two parts of Galatians, though. We're in Galatians 6, uh, verses 1 through 10 today. And like I said, I'm speaking, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, spiritual community and love and a lot of other great stuff. I'm really glad that you've decided to listen, and I hope you stick with us. We'd love to see you in person. We're here at Highland, 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We'd love to have you join us. So, let me go ahead and turn it over to myself with Galatians 1 through 10. And I will say that a lot of this lesson is borrowed from a sermon that David Platt did. And this was actually taught about five years ago, which is interesting. So there's some stuff in here about my brother, uh, not in a bad way, but you're here. So I didn't, five years ago when I wrote this, I didn't know that you would be here five years later when I was teaching it again. Um, and it's also kind of interesting because I think some of the, the things that we talk about here are really like uh, apropos for right now. So it's weird how that works. Um, so maybe this is all intended to be this way. Uh, I want to introduce with a story about a guy named William Carey. I'm going to guess that most everyone has not heard of William Carey. Uh, it's not Jim Carey's dad or something. Uh, this is a guy from 1793. Has anyone heard of William Carey? William Carey uh, I don't know. Who is that? Well, I think it's a college named after him. Yeah, yeah, yeah probably so. So well, you guys have heard of it. I'm glad my parents were here to, to answer that question so well. Uh, my aunt taught there. Well, I didn't know that. This is making this so much better. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess there are three people that sort of know of William Carey. The rest of us, let's talk about William Carey. Um, and so in 1793, uh, he moved to India. He was one of the first missionaries to India. Uh, he was there to reach unreached people for the gospel. Uh, he spent seven years there. He worked and toiled and labored, and he, not saw, he did not see one person come to Christ. So seven years he did that, and no one came to Christ. Uh, he wrote home to his sisters in England. He said, I feel like a crop's about to come up, and then it gets washed out over and over and over again. Okay, pretty sad, pretty depressing. I don't know if I would have lasted seven years with not one person uh, coming to Christ. Uh, I think it's true that sometimes when we do things, now this could be in a church setting, it could be in a class setting, this could just be in life or in work. I think we try to do things, and they don't work out right? Uh, or maybe we try and do something like we decide we're going to start like a small group, or we're going to start a Bible study, or we're going to start trying to invite people over for lunch, or we're going to start a service project, and maybe it starts really well, and then it kind of teeters off, uh, or it just, it just isn't what it used to be, uh, or sometimes it takes a long time for it to be successful. I think even sometimes things are just never really successful, right? Um, but for the things that take a while to get successful or the things that kind of lull, I mean, you look at like the Bridge Builders class, we've kind of like done this with numbers and enthusiasm and things. Um, it's hard to sort of keep the faith and to keep working towards those goals, I think. Um, I, think I think it's kind of hard to, to sort of stay that path. For William Carey, it was seven years where, you know, no one had come to believe. That's, I think that's hard to stay on that road. Um, I think it's also really hard to stay motivated if we're just on our own, okay? So if you don't have a strong community, uh, I think it can be really, really difficult, okay? Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today is spiritual community. So a lot of this comes from Galatians 6. And so we've been in Galatians now for, I don't know, eight, nine weeks, something like that. We got this Sunday and then next Sunday and we'll be wrapped up. Um, and so when we talk about spiritual community, specifically I mean that we're free to love one another as a result of the Spirit of God in our hearts. So the central truth today, kind of the takeaway, the theme, is that the greatest evidence of a Spirit-filled life is love for one another. Okay, so the greatest evidence of a spirit-filled life is love for one another. All right, so Kevin, it's been a few weeks. I don't know if y'all were here when Kevin Betts uh, did class, did a great job. 
Uh, he talked on the first half of Galatians 5, and in that, 13 through 14. So if you want to kind of be in Galatians 5 and 6, we'll be kind of dancing around there and getting through those sections. Uh, but he says, uh, not Kevin, but Paul, uh, says that you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. All right, so when Jesus talks to, I think, the rich young ruler, he tells him that there's two commands that are the greatest, and one's to love God and the other is to uh, love our neighbors, right? And so love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, into Galatians 5 a little bit more. Alex uh, did this two weeks ago. Last week we were in the combined class, uh, but Alex talked about the fruits of the Spirit and also that of the sinful nature, if we all remember that. Um, and so the fruit of the Spirit, what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. Okay, so actually Alex talked about how it's not like it's just one, you know, it's not, it's not like it's like multiple fruits that are disconnected. He was saying that it's actually, you know, one fruit. So it's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit of the Spirit. Uh, so however you want to take that or interpret that, uh, it's also true that the first one that's mentioned is love, right? So it's, it's the greatest command is to love each other as ourselves. Also the first fruit of the Spirit is love. And I think in some ways you could say that all those fruits of the Spirit are sort of connected by a spirit of love. I think that's the point that we'll try and make, especially as we talk about community. Um, all right, so we're going to pick up at Galatians 5, 26, and we're going to read through uh, chapter 6, 1 through 10. So I'm just going to do that. All right, so picking up in 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest not you be tempted to. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in the due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, so that's what we're going to dive into this morning. All right, so again, this is kind of the theme. The greatest evidence of a Spirit-filled life, of the life of someone that has a Spirit, that's doing all these things that we've talked about, um, would be that of love for one another. I think there's a misunderstanding when we talk about the Spirit. I guess it's, it's kind of popular to talk about, how, well, the Church of Christ never talks about the Holy Spirit. I think maybe because we've realized that we do now, I think we talk about it more. Uh, maybe we don't talk about it as much as some other churches. I think when I think of the Holy Spirit or when I was growing up, maybe in a community that didn't talk about the Holy Spirit as much, um, I think of like things like you know, speaking in tongues or handling snakes or prophesying, uh, these kind of like, like spirit things like in the New Testament. Uh, I think those things are biblical, and we're not talking about those today, but I don't think they're the most important evidence of the Spirit. And so if you're in a church where like, that's how you prove that the Spirit is in your church or that's, you know, it's in you as a Christian, I don't think that really matches what Paul would say. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2, If I speak in the tongues of men but have not love, then I'm like a resounding gong. And if I have prophecies that I speak but I have no love, he says, then I am nothing. So I think even in a time where people were speaking in tongues or they were prophesying or they were handling snakes or they're doing these kind of funky like apostolic first century church things that we don't see anymore, 
um, it still didn't mean anything if they weren't showing love. Okay, so even though they don't have those things, doesn't mean that we don't have the Spirit or that we can't prove that the Spirit lives in us. Okay, all right, so we're going to look also at four enemies of spiritual community. So if we would agree, and, and you may or may not, that uh, th- this community, this class, this church could be better, it could be more cohesive, um, if, if you don't think that that's true, then I guess you would think there are no enemies to that. Okay, but I think we would all agree that this could all be better. Like we could all take care of each other more. We could all love each other more. Um, this church could serve its purposes greater. Um, and if the theme is, is that the greatest way to show a spirit-filled uh, community is through love for one another, I think we'd all agree that we need more of that. Okay, we need more of the spirit. We need more love for each other. Um, I think the reason we don't have that is that there are some enemies to that that are pretty active. Okay, so let's look at those. Uh, the first enemy is self-centeredness. I know Mary like teaches a class on how to write beautifully, and I, I think I need to take that class. Uh, I got a lot of work to do, um, but uh, anyway, uh, my handwriting's not the best. Um, and so, uh, self-centeredness. I think all the spiritual uh, enemies of the spiritual community have a couple things in common. It's alluded to there at the end of chapter five, but it would be pride and self-exaltation. I think we know what pride is. Self-exaltation, a little bit fancier of a word, I guess, but it's just the idea that we need to lift ourselves up, okay? Um, and so 526, it says, let us not become conceited, having vain glory in ourselves, centered on ourselves, because when we are, two things happen. So this is what it says in that verse, is that when we are prideful, two things happen. We want to provoke each other, and we begin to envy each other. So I think these two things, so I'll say provoke and envy. Okay. All right, so provoke, I think we know what that word means. Provoke is like if trying to get somebody to fight you, basically, like you provoke them, right? Trying to like kind of push them, you know, push their buttons verbally, maybe physically. Peter, you don't do a lot of provoking, I don't think. You provoke a lot. Okay, I read you wrong. I read you wrong. Um, I think we all do that, usually with words. Usually, like, if you're having a conversation, you're trying to prove yourself right, uh, there's a little bit of that that happens. Um, in Greek, it means to challenge someone. So that's all it means, simply uh, to challenge them to a contest. Uh, the interesting thing about uh, provocation or provoking someone is that you're trying to show superiority over someone. Okay? And so this arises in this idea of pride, that we think we're better than someone else, and then self-exaltation, that we need, to, uh, we need to elevate ourselves, we need to exalt ourselves. And so we provoke people because we want to show that we're better than them. Okay? So we talk about Tennessee football because we want to say, well, you know, my team's better. Who's your team? Georgia Tech. We focus on academics. Mm, that's good. <laughs> Probably a good thing. Seems like a little bit of an excuse, but okay. Um, well, Arkansas won yesterday, so we're the best team, apparently, right now. Um, all right, so we provoke. We want to show that we're superior. We want to say, well, you know, I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm more successful, I've got a, a better wife, a better family, whatever. Uh, so we provoke people in that way. Uh, but also, at the same time, we envy each other, okay? So even, you can just leave it there, that's good. Uh, we envy each other. So even like the person that feels the highest of themselves, they still have moments where they feel inferior to other people, okay? All right, and so we envy other people or what they have. We covet what they have, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments for a reason. It's been around for a while that we, we want what other people have, okay? Um, and so there's this sort of like competition that's always going on where because we think we're the most important people on earth, because we're all focused on ourselves, we're constantly trying to provoke people to, to prove that we're more superior. And we're also dealing with envy where we deal with this kind of inadequacy or this inferiority. 
And so it's sort of this constant thing of trying to tear people down and also be jealous of people and then want to tear them down so that we can feel better about ourselves. Okay, and it's a competition that's always going on. In uh, chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says, Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself. And then he says also, without comparing himself to somebody else. Okay, uh, and so competition, unhealthy comparison to other people breeds conceit. It also breeds self-centeredness. Uh, I did a lecture, it's been about a week now, on finding happiness as a dental professional. Um, I, I've been speaking now for about three years in the orthodontic world, and I started on social media, and I love that stuff, and um, I love talking about it and sharing kind of ideas on how to build businesses. But I think in speaking about it, it feels like a little hollow, um, I think just like personally or philosophically. And so I've been trying to like talk about things that matter more, about how to like, uh, you know, keep ourselves from being so distracted digitally, uh, which I'm definitely, and then also now kind of moving into talking about happiness. Uh, but there was a list I did of like the top 10 things that you could do to be happier. And obviously a list like that's imperfect. There's a lot of things you could do other than just 10. But the last one on my list, the one that kept showing up in all sorts of different literature and books, was this idea of comparing ourselves to other people, uh, or envy, or jealousy, or whatever. Um, and really pride, and pride plays a big part in why we're not happy, I think, uh, and envy does too. And so we've gotta stop comparing ourselves to other people. We're all, in, in our own right, special people. We're all created by God. Uh, we're all perfect how we are, okay? Obviously, the things we can do to improve ourselves, but right, we've, we, we can't compare ourselves to other people. It just doesn't. And the funny thing is, like, you know, everyone looks at everyone else and is envious of something, and then they're envious of the other person, so it's almost kind of silly, right? Um, and so, C.S. Lewis talks about this. We've done this lesson series. If you've been around in this class for the last few months, we did a Mere Christianity series, and so we talked about this, but I feel like when I think of pride, I think of C.S. Lewis and what he talks about in Mere Christianity, and a lot of his quotes are so good that I'm just going to read a lot of them off. Uh, but he says that if you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. Uh, so we just need to all confess that we're conceited. Maybe there's someone who's not conceited, but I think we probably all are. I think we're all probably pretty self-centered. Um, he talks about how humility is the great unattainable. And what he means by that is you try and try and try to be humble, and then when you get there, you're proud of it, and you have to start all over. So I think we all know people that are like, I don't know if you say like overly modest or overly humble. It's like, ah, oh, just it's not me, it's just God. Or, and, and some people, maybe that's really how they are, but I think some people uh, perhaps they want to sort of force humility or modesty to almost put you in a place where you have to match that or something. And I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't explain this as well as I'd like to. Um, but I think it's a challenge. I think that, you know, in the face of people who are cocky and overconfident and in a Christian community, there are people that want to be the most humble, which is, C.S. Lewis is saying, is sort of like a prideful thing. Like you want to do it so that you can be, you know, talked of as the most humble or something. So uh, it's, it's hard. Uh, he concludes with this. He says, we're all conceited people. And if you think you're not, then you've proved my point. Uh, he also says this about pride, which you may agree, is, is it's the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. That's pretty strong. All right, so I don't know, I don't know if you would think of pride as that, but uh, anytime I like, look at sin or study sin or think about it or when I talk about unhappiness and what makes people unhappy, uh, usually pride is kind of at the base of that. And so envy and provocation. Uh, so that's what the scripture would say. Uh, so we look at all right, Adam and Eve. So the first people, look at Genesis 1. What caused them to sin? Uh, you could say that it was a pride uh, kind of directed at God himself. Okay, so Adam and Eve would say that it's our authority. It's not your authority. You can't tell us what to do. 
Okay, so we're going to do this. And, and the serpent is saying that we can be as smart as you. We can know the things that you know. And so in pride, we want that. You know, we envy God's ability to know these things. So we're going to decide that we have the right, we have the authority to do that. We know how that all worked out, right? Um, so I think it undergirds every sin. Uh, C.S. Lewis also links pride to competition. So this idea that we're always sort of competing with each other. Uh, he says this, he says, each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is essentially, or at its core, competitive. Uh, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. I like that line. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Uh, it is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride has gone. All right, so I like that idea that it's not about how much you have, it's about that you have more than someone else. I think that's like even like kindergartners like sitting around the lunch table, like they're gonna look at what someone else is eating or what they have for lunch. They'd be like, oh, I have uh, Danimals or what, you know, whatever they have. Uh, what was cool to eat when we were in kindergarten? Lunchables, Dunkaroos, that was the word I was looking at. Yeah, Peter, thank you. Fruit roll-up, roll Dunkaroos. And then the fruit roll-up, you had the ones that were like shapes, and that was even cooler. So, oh, you got the regular fruit roll-up? Okay, good luck eating that. Um, but it's true, it's, it's, it's in our sinful nature. It's in kind of what makes us human to, you know, want something better, okay, and to want to compare. All right, we get that point. Uh, and so uh, Paul mentioned competition in Galatians 5.15. So what we're just talking about, he says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Uh, and this is a picture of how the world approaches relationships. Uh, it should not be the way that the church uh, views relationships, Okay. But I know it's true. I know that, like, especially like social media doesn't make it any easier. You know, it's really easy to compare ourselves. It's really easy to see, like, three couples out hanging out, and it's like, well, why wasn't I asked? Or, you know, well, I don't want to be there anyway. You know, or <laughs> however, however we deal with that, right? Um, and so I'm a competitive person. Anyone who knows me, like, knows that I'm really driven by uh, competition, and I, I blame my brother completely. I'm just kidding. Uh, we were really competitive growing up, so we would, I think, compete, like, in everything. Right? I think anyone who has a sibling probably has dealt with that, right? has dealt with that comparison and wanting to be better and who can eat more pizza, you know, stupid stuff like that. You know, I can eat seven slices, I can eat eight, you know, or whatever. Phil could always eat more pizza. Um, maybe who's best at Nintendo? I don't know if who that was, but uh, who's best at basketball, baseball? We compete on those things. Uh, Phil and I actually got a f into a physical fight over a Final Jeopardy question once. I don't know if you remember that. Um, and I was in college, <laughs> so, um, so I was a grown man. Uh, we got in a fight over Jeopardy. Um, in the business world, so any of us who are in that world, I was just spending the weekend with the business world. Uh, you hear like ideas of like, you know, kind of every man for himself or sort of dog eat dog or cutthroat. You know, of course there are, there are other ideas and I was at a meeting where we were, you know, I had a guy talking about not being competitors, but being colleagues and things like that. So it's not all like that. But I think if you really kind of get down to it, like in a business setting, a corporate setting, there is definitely a cutthroat nature to trying to get what you want to get and kind of move up the ladder, okay? And so there's a lot of that we hear about. I mean, in a dental school, like you'd be in the lab and you'd have work and it wouldn't be rare to hear someone messing up someone else's work so they could do better, right? Um, so I think when you really push people to that point, uh, that comes out of them, that competitiveness. Uh, we look at the church, it's, you know, we're not immune from that. So when you talk to someone about their church, especially if you're a minister, it's about who has the most members at the church. If you're a youth minister, I mean, it was a youth intern, it's like, first time you meet a youth, another youth minister, it's like, well, how many kids you got going? And it's like, you know, 90. 
Well, we got 130 right now. It's pretty good. Same way with orthodontists. It's like, well, how many, how many patients have you seen today? Well, like 65. Oh, yeah, I used to see 65. Yeah, we see about 120. It's, it's pretty cool. You know, um, you never know if it's true. What are you producing? Oh, yeah, I used to produce that. You know, whatever. Um, we even do it as members. So, you know, we have our preference as to which preacher we prefer or what worship style we prefer or if we're early or late service people, um, what class we're in. It's sort of all competitive. Um, and the point is, and we're talking a lot about this, we're kind of driving this home, but uh, competition bleeds into our personal relationships. Okay, it, it blinds our ability to love people as we should. All right, the pride kind of gets in the way. It's sort of like if we have 100 parts to us and 98 of them are taken up by pride, there's not a lot of room for love and uh, it's a problem. And so there's no room for this in the church. And so when we look at every man and every woman in the community of faith here at Highland in this class, we don't need to provoke or envy. We need to love and serve. All right, so self-centeredness gets in the way of that. All right, so another enemy of spiritual community, so there's a lot on, on self-centeredness, is this one, which is self-righteousness. Okay. Um, and so this uh, was a big deal for the Galatians church. It's not the same deal that we deal with, but they had legalists that were forcing circumcision. Okay. Thankfully, we don't have that. We have legalists that are forcing blood donation, you know, <laughs> but not circumcision. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> so we all know legalists. Uh, I grew up, I think we all say this, like it was just so terrible 20 years ago, just all legalism. And now we're so good, right? Um, but I mean, I grew up in, in, a, in a school that had a lot of, you know, legalist type people. Uh, can't think of her name. Some lady was showing me that she had gone to Jonesboro and was looking for my uh, church, which was maybe not as bad in the legalism sense, but the school I went to was a little bit more so. Um, but uh, she had this little, um, what do you call it? We call it the link, like a bulletin. Yeah, whatever, bulletin from a church in Jonesboro. She was trying to go to the church I grew up at, and she was asking me, did you go to this church? I was like, no, I did not go to that church. It was like a really conservative church. Um, and in it, it said, Everyone who preaches or teaches from the pulpit will use one of these three authorized versions of the New Testament uh, or, you know, the Bible. So it was like King James, New King James, or American Standard, probably. Um, that's legalism, okay? Um, the way that the service is ordered, we can make a big deal out of that. That, that can be legalism. The kind of clothes we wear, that's legalism. Uh, we can even go as far as to say that certain things about worship or certain things about who does what, or whatever, I mean, those can all be kind of legalistic things, right? Um, and so legalists, what they delight in more than anything is heaping burdens on someone else, okay? Uh, Matthew 23, 4 says, <clears throat> Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. He says, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing uh, to lift a finger to move them. And so a legalist, someone that deals with self-righteousness, they either feel that because they've done a certain amount of work that everyone else needs to do it, uh, or maybe even worse, they think that, well, I've already done this, and so I need to watch everyone else do the same thing. But I'm not willing to help them because I don't have any help either, which is just kind of wrong. Okay. All right, so the third one here is self-sufficiency. I, I don't even know if you can read that, but... Anyway, that's up there. Um, it, Paul implies that we all have burdens and that we aren't carried, uh, intended to carry them alone. Uh, and this is where pride seeps uh, up again. So self-sufficiency. So uh, it's easy for us to all show up at 10 a.m. to church, or maybe you showed up at 8.30 or 8.15 or whatever, um, to gather together in a room and to put up a front that everything is okay. 
um, uh, to act like we don't need the people around us or that we can do this on our own. Um, and, and I think that's a common thing. I think even maybe worse is that if we have issues and we don't share it with people, then we become angry that no one has helped us with those issues. So maybe we've had something you know, of a personal nature that's really difficult and we feel like, you know what, I've been going to this church for five years and no one cares that I'm dealing with this or no one's helping me with this. Uh, but if we're so self-sufficient, we have this mindset of like, well, we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we've not talked to anyone, we've not shared that with anyone, uh, then how can we expect them to help us? Um, and in a worldview, in our cultural worldview, it is that we should be self-sufficient. We should be able to do this on our own. That's a very kind of American way of thinking. Um, but, it, but it misses the point of Christian community. And we do need each other, and we're weak without uh, each other. All right, the last one is self-esteem. This is the fourth enemy of Christian community. And this one, I think, is maybe the, the most surprising one. I think we, we get all those, um, even though they kind of combat what is maybe a cultural uh, idea. You know, culturally, we would say that we should be centered on ourselves. We should focus on ourselves first. Uh, self-righteousness, maybe, maybe not. I mean, a lot of the most famous, successful people are pretty self-righteous, uh, and that we should be self-sufficient. Uh, uh, also, definitely that we should have self-esteem, that we should have high self-esteem. I think that's probably taught from kindergarten on, is that we, you know, we should be, you know, proud of ourselves. Really, like, we kind of encourage that. I mean, I even encourage that with our kids, you know, that like, you have good self-esteem. You don't need to let someone think that, you know, that they're going to be better than you. I mean, you kind of say these things to kids because you, you don't want to watch them deal with kind of feeling inadequate. And when they do, it, it's terrible. Like, you watch them play soccer, and they're the worst kid on the soccer team. That's tough. So you want to tell them, like, you can be just as good at soccer, you know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe that's okay because it's just soccer. But I think self-esteem is something that creates a lot of issues. So let's talk about it. So if you look in Galatians 6, 3, it says, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so... Uh, we would kind of say the opposite. We would say that if we want our relationships to be good, uh, we need to think more highly of ourselves. Uh, Buddha would say, I know you read a lot of Buddha, but he would say, you yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your own love and affection. Uh, relationship experts, researchers on personal growth would say uh, that you, you have to sort of even these ideas of like you have to date yourself or you have to love yourself before you can love other people or that high self-esteem would build better relationships okay this is not really what scripture teaches okay scripture would say that if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing he is nothing romans seven eighteen says that uh this is paul there's nothing good in me john fifteen five says and this is jesus apart from me you can do nothing okay um I'm someone that I don't think that positive thinking is wrong. Like one of my favorite like self-help books is The Power of Positive Thinking. Like I like that. Um, so this, this is a tough one for me. But I think the point is with, with self-esteem is the way that you place yourself next to other people. So you're actually esteeming yourself above other people. You're, you're esteeming yourself. You're focusing more on yourself. You're, you're, you're taking the love that you have and you're giving more of it to yourself than to others. Which, which is definitely wrong, okay? I don't think it means you have to hate yourself, okay? I think it's okay to, to, to love yourself, okay? Um, but I think it also creates a lot of other theological issues, and this one has been coming up a lot lately, but I think if we think that we deserve something, or we think that we're special, or we think that we're earning God's love, or God's favor, or salvation in general, uh, we think that of all people, that, you know what, I know he doesn't believe in Jesus, but he's a good guy. And that that means something. I think that's a problem. And I think that's a part of, of, of this self-esteem idea is, is that we think that God owes us something. 
you know, we think that, well, maybe I'm not perfect, but I've done some good things, and I think, I think God's going to honor that. Or that. We believe that hell is not a real place because, you know, how could God send good people to hell? Because we're good, you know, we're good people. We do good things. Um, and I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. Um, so what if the way that we love others is not about centering our thoughts around ourselves? But what if love for others is about realizing that there is nothing good in us apart from Jesus? Um, and so we need Christ for every good thing, and he's the key to good relationships. Um, and the key to that is not a high self-esteem, but a high, this is kind of cheesy, but a high Christ-esteem. And so it's the idea that we should esteem Christ in us over ourselves is what sustains us or what makes us good. Does that make sense? I'll kind of say that another way. Um, if we rely on self-esteem for the good things in our lives, for the good relationships, for the love in our community, it's going to fail. It should be that of Christ. So it's, it's easy to kind of put Christ on the back burner, or put God on the back burner, and say that the good things that I have in life are a product of the hard work that I've put in, uh, or the things that I did, or because I'm so smart, or because this is what I've done. Um, but it's really, it's Christ in us that does good things. Uh, the love that's in us certainly is because of the Spirit, it's of Christ being in us. All right, so to drive that point home, Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So I want Christ to be esteemed or lifted up in me. Uh, it's the Spirit that produces the fruit. He does the work. Okay. All right, so those are the four enemies, the spiritual community, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and self-esteem. So how do we combat these? All right, so there's one thing. Self-examination. Okay. All right, Galatians 6, 4, and 5 says, Each one should test his own actions, that he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. So basically, Paul is saying, uh, instead of looking at your thoughts and your actions and your attitudes and view of how you're doing in comparison to the people around you, put your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions before the lens of the holiness of God, and now you will begin to see yourself rightly. All right, and so when we see ourselves rightly before God, and we kind of accept who we are, I think it's easier uh, to be begin to see others rightly before God. So we're sort of freed up. So if we see ourselves as less than what the world would tell us to see ourselves as, I think we're freed up to treat people with the love that they deserve. Um, and so if we see ourselves as imperfect, it's easier for us to love someone who's imperfect. Does that sound fair? Does that sound right? Okay, if we're too prideful, we feel like no one else deserves our love or our time or our efforts. Maybe because they don't help us. Well, why would I help them because they're not helping me? But if we see ourselves rightly in view of God's holiness and how we are compared to that, uh, we're on the same level as everyone else. Okay, if we put ourselves on levels where we're better and everyone's worse, then it's very hard for us to want to come down and help them. But if we put ourselves in context or in comparison to God, then we're all on the same level and we all deserve each other's love. Okay? Um, and so we're no longer interested in provoking or envying people. Uh, we're interested in loving and serving people. And this happens through self-examination. All right, so we can combat this sort of vain competition, this pride, uh, by confession before God. So self-examination. And so the simple part, kind of the take-home, is if we confess that we ourselves are broken, that we ourselves have burdens that we can't carry on our own, then we're more likely to want to carry other people's burdens. Okay. All right, so then we'll finish with this. We'll finish with five commands for spiritual community. These all start with a C. And the first one is confront. Okay. All right, so we need to confront one another in our sin. 
Now this one's not fun, okay, but it's, it's uh, in Galatians here. So Galatians 6.1, it says, Confront one another in your sin. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Um, I think this is one of the most neglected facets of the New Testament church today is keeping each other accountable and disciplined. Um, I don't really know why. I, I think it's to combat the legalism that we, that we always kind of look back in the past of the church and we say, at least as I stand here, and my perspective is very limited, but it seems like we don't want to call people out because of the pain and the hurt that that caused in the past. And so maybe it was what we were doing it the wrong way, or I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a, a part of it that we don't want to tell someone that they're wrong or confront them in their sin because we want to see them fail, or we want to feel like we're superior and watch them kind of, kind of deal with that on their own. I, I don't know. Don't want to lose a friendship. Um, but if it's, if it's biblical and, and we're spirit-filled and we're in a community of believers that would accept this, we should be able to do it in such a way that we don't lose that friendship. I think the reality is, is that, yeah, we fear that we'd lose a friendship or we fear that we'd make things awkward. Um, and, I mean, that's, that's my fear for sure. Um, go ahead. Yeah. We're all far and high over here, and so when someone confronts us, we're, we won't, I mean, I don't receive it well. I mean, no, you know, you, it's hard to receive it if you are not regularly self-examining yourself anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think because of that, we look at someone that's in sin and we say it's not our business or it's, it's their problem. I've got enough problems of my own. I hear that more and more, like I think is, is now a lot of us have kids, and not all of us do, but as we have careers, we have kids, or we're, we're busy. I think that our, our go-to excuse is like, oh, I'm busy. So if, you know, if we send out like an email like, well, who can help with X and Y? It is, nobody wants to do it usually. And it's usually it's like, well, I want to spend more time with my family, or I just, I got a lot going on right now. And so then it kind of becomes one of these things of like, well, who's the busiest? Who's got the most going on? Who can most justify? You know, like Peter's like, I, mean, I worked 120 hours last week. Like, like, so maybe you get a pass. Peter gets a pass. Everyone else, you're on the hook. He also come up, he came up with Dunkaroos, so he gets get two passes, Peter. Um, but we're in this thing together. I know that sounds cheesy. That sounds like I'm about to ask you to do a trust fall or something. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's got to be a way to restore people gently, okay, and in love, uh, with beauty and grace and mercy. And we've got to figure out how to do that, Okay. Uh, but if we think that this is important, that we, that we do the right things, that we're filled with the Spirit, we've got to be able to confront each other with that. Uh, we also need to be able to comfort. So we like this one more, comfort. That sounds more fun than confront. Uh, we need to be there for each other. In Galatians 6, 2, it says we need to carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. So we all have a lot of burdens. I'm going to list some out so you'll kind of maybe connect with some of these. Uh, physical struggles, illness, emotional struggles, Depression, worry, doubt, anxiety, confusion uh, that you're wrestling with about a decision that you have to make. Uh, there's a Mark Twain quote that says, you know, I've worried about a lot of things in my life, and most of them never happened. Um, I think we all deal with that. We, we deal with our minds being pulled to the past or to the future, and we're never present in the moment, which is a problem. Um, and, and Jesus tells us that. Uh, not Jesus, God tells us that. Um, I guess it's in Ecclesiastes about don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, today's got an, enough of its own to deal with. It's like the worst 
paraphrasing of a Bible verse ever, but I think you get the point. Uh, maybe we have family struggles, struggle with kids, struggle with parents, maybe with your spouse, maybe you're facing divorce or separation. Uh, maybe it struggles at work, unemployment, financial struggles. Uh, there's all kinds of different things. It could be grief, pain, loss, desertion, loneliness. Uh, these are all the burdens that we're all dealing with. So each of us are dealing with different numbers of these things. And that's terrible if we have to carry those burdens on our, on our own. So we've probably all been like in a youth group where you know, he fills up a bag with all these like heavy things. And he's like, hey, have you ever had one of those like lessons? No, am I the only one? Okay. Like fills up this huge bag and he's like trying to carry it himself, you know. And this is all the crap that we have to deal with, basically, metaphorically, in the bag. And then, you know, he starts giving it to other people so they can kind of carry it. Now it's easier. Um, I think it's, it's sort of cheeseball, but it's a good example of the idea that we're supposed to carry each other's burdens and it becomes easier. So we're not supposed to fight these battles alone. Um, so the people sitting next to you, people on this side, people on this side, you're all carrying burdens and you're not meant to carry those on your own. Okay. Um, so the first thing is we have to confess those things to ourselves. And then we have to be comfortable with the idea of sharing those with other people. And as Anna was saying, if we're, we're stuck in all these things, those enemies of this, we're not going to get there. All right. So one way that we can do this is hard when we come to church, we sit in a room of 40, 50, 60 people, whatever, or we sit in there with 600 people, 700 people, or we sit in there with 300 people. That's hard to get to a point where, you're, I mean, it's not like during that, you know, 17 seconds after the opening song where they tell us to go meet somebody that we're going to say, hey, I'm dealing with pornography. Sorry, uh, I need some help with that. Or, you know, I'm about to go through a divorce. I need some help with that. And then the song starts. You know, it's, it's not going to happen in those moments. Even in this class, like, I'm going to go over today, so you're not going to have any time to talk with anybody. But there's just, like, limited time. And so I think that it's on us to, I think small groups is one of those things. And, and I feel like, personally, that when small groups were really active, that the community in here was better. And I think we were in more of a position to carry each other's burdens. And I think that as those have kind of, waxed and waned, I don't think that we're as strong a community as we once were. And so we're going to try and get those going back again. And so I think it's important. That's the reason we're doing it. It's not to prove some point or it's not because we think we have to do them, but I think it's because we need more community. Um, and so I think that's a good thing. So I I'd encourage you to kind of dive into those and give them a shot. The other thing you can do is no one's saying you can't do this on your own. And so I know there's a lot of you who, who get together to spend time together, and that's great. And you should do that. And so if you're at a church for four years and you don't have a small group and you don't have community or you don't feel that way and you've never done anything about it, you've never asked someone to lunch, or you've never invited someone over for dinner or said, hey, we're going to get together and we're going to pray together as a group, uh, you need to, okay? All right, so the third one is share. All right, so we need to share our resources generously. Verse 6 says, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things. Did I do something wrong? You're right. <laughs> Share. I did. Why is that one not an S? The other ones are S's. I don't know. Maybe, maybe so you'd pay attention to this one. Chair. I misspelled chair. Sorry. Uh, exactly. Thank you. Uh, so anyone who receives instruction of the word must share all good things with his instructor. Uh, so I'm not a paid preacher. And so I think what this verse is actually saying is you need to take care of the ones who teach and preach. Um, I'm doing this pro bono, so I have no conflict of interest in saying this. Um, so I think, I think what he's saying here is, is that in the Galatians church, 
you need to take care of the one that's teaching. You need, you need uh, you know, to take care of their needs, basically. If they're not able to work because they're doing this, you need to do that. I think what it's also saying that's more relevant to us is, is that the Word needs to be taught. It's important that the Word is taught, okay? Uh, so it's important that it's, it's taught in, you know, the big church. It's important that it's taught here. Uh, we're committed to teaching the Word. And this is what David Platt says about teaching the Word consistently, is that if the Word is clearly and accurately presented, or, uh, yeah, presented week by week by week, our lives will be changed for all of eternity, not because of communication ability or words or thoughts or ideas or a minister or a preacher or whatever, but because the Word of God is good and it changes the way we think and how we prioritize our lives. All right, so if we would accept that the things that are truths to our culture are in, you know, they're in contrast, they disagree with what the Bible would say, then we need to listen to that more so. And so if we gather together and it's just about hanging out, it's just about spending time together, it doesn't necessarily change the way that we think. Uh, and I think we end up in a spot where we're all still prideful and focused on ourselves. All right, the fourth thing, which does start with, oh, it's also not with a C. I don't know why I said that. Now I feel bad. There's actually more S's than C's, so whatever. There's nothing about a C here. It's so. Two C's, three S's, deal with it. All right, uh, we need to sow our resources <laughs> eternally. So Galatians 6, 7 through 8 says, a man reaps what he sows. So the, what that means is if you sow barley, you don't reap wheat. If you sow sunflower seeds, you don't reap apple trees, okay? I think we know that. If you sow eating pizza all the time, you don't look like a million bucks, okay? I think we, 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 you reap uh, cholesterol and, and you know, heart attack eventually. Um, so here's the reality is that we reap eternally what we sow here. And so if we invest in only ourselves and that which pleases uh, the sinful nature and the flesh, uh, you know, we're gonna, it's going to bear earthly fruit. Uh, but it's not going to bear eternal fruit. All right, and so we're, we're called to community. We're called to taking care of the burdens of other people. And actually, if we don't have a lot of those burdens, I mean, I look around my life, you know, knock on wood, and I don't see a lot of the burdens that other people deal with, and I'm, in fact, then called to more of that. You know, I think there's a greater responsibility if you're a leader or if you have a life or you're blessed with certain resources, and it's sort of like the, the story of the talents. You're expected, if you've got a lot of talent, or a lot of blessing to, to, to grow that, to use that as much as you can and use it even more. Um, so, all right, so the last one is spend. This is the last command for spiritual community. And this comes from uh, Galatians 6, 9 through 10. This is the idea that we should spend our resources selflessly. Uh, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. Okay, so we've all heard our, this is another like really, really common uh, spiritual metaphor, uh, hearing our spiritual walk compared to that of a marathon. I guess it's our spiritual jog. Um, but I've never run a marathon. Has anyone run a marathon? Half marathon, I was gonna ask that next. You did? Did you finish it? Yeah. Oh, nice. Does anyone run a 5K? Just kidding. <laughs> I'm gonna go down. Does anyone not run ever? Okay. Um, so I've never run a marathon. Maybe I will someday. I don't know. It's kind of one of those like things in the back of my mind. It's like, that'd be kind of cool to say I did. I'm not putting the bumper sticker on my car. I know that. But, um, and I don't have to feel like I'm going to offend any of you because none of you have run it. Do you have the, the 13.1 on here? Okay, good. No way. Good answer. Um, now the 0, 0.0 is almost as bad if you have that sticker. So anyway, I'll stop talking. Um, of a marathon, we're familiar with the idea of this wall that people hit. Okay, I don't know if it's like mile, what's it supposed to be, 17, 18, 19, 20, doesn't matter. Maybe you hit it early, you hit it at mile 10, where you're just like, your body tells you, 
you got to quit. Like, this is weird. You got to stop. Okay, I don't know what you're trying to do here, but we're done. Um, and so the runner, runners will talk about it. It's like, I just feel like I could not go. So you hit this wall. You keep running. You keep running if you want to finish, and you get past that wall. But every runner talks about it. The same is true of, I think, spiritual community. I think it's true that there are walls that we're going to hit in this race. Uh, maybe we hit it when we have our second kid, and it's like, I cannot do this. Life is really tough. And maybe we stop running. You know, maybe we stop running for a, a couple years. I don't know. Um, or for a couple miles. Um, but as it, has, it says here, don't be weary in doing good, and let us not give up. Okay, so we've got to keep running. All right, so in conclusion, I want to go back to William Carey, who the three of you knew. Um, and so in 1793, William Carey, he moved to India. He was trying to reach uh, unchurched people, one of the first missionaries in India. For seven years, he worked and toiled and labored, and no one came to Christ. And so as we were saying earlier, he wrote to his sisters in England. He said, I feel like a crop's about to come up, and then it gets washed out over and over and over again. But, and I think you knew that there was a but because he had a college named after him. They don't name colleges after people that, that try for seven years and don't succeed, right? Um, but in 1800s, actually December of 1800s, so seven years after he started his mission in India, he baptized the first Hindu convert to Christianity um, in his ministry in the Ganges River, okay? So one of his friends wrote of India, the land of a million gods, and his friend wrote, Ye gods of stone and clay, did you not tremble when in the triune name one soul shook you from his feet as dust? And that was the beginning of a harvest of souls that God would bless William Carey and his co-workers with. All right, so it wasn't just Carey. It was him and, and a lot of other people who were with him. So Carey went on to accomplish amazing things. He started multiple colleges, converted many people. Today he's considered the father of modern missions. So the, the kind of takeaway for me is this, is that things can feel very tough. If we have this, you know, this marathon idea, we're going to hit a lot of walls in life. This class is going to hit a lot of walls. It already has. Um, this church will. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things to come that we don't know, and we, we don't know how to expect that they'll come, and they could really shake this community. Um, I think that these things have already shake, you know, shook this community. They'll continue to shake this community, and so we have to work at getting self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and self-esteem out of the way. We've got to get it, work at getting our pride out of the way. We also have to work, work on sharing each other's burdens, of being aware of what it is that's going on in your life that's difficult and being there for you, um, being there for you and you, you know. Uh, we, we have to focus on that. And we have to do it because we love each other as much as we love ourselves. Okay, that, that is the, the command, as Jesus would say. That's the command, is to love each other uh, as ourselves. Um, and the good news is, is that if we keep on that path, even though things may be successful at a time, they may not be successful. If we keep on that path, if we keep running, there will be a harvest to come. Okay? So, that's what we got for Galatians. We will be wrapping it up next week with David. So, surprise, surprise, uh, I spoke too long. <laughs> that was the longest lesson I've given in a while, about 45 minutes. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I hope, I hope you got something out of that. And I'm uh, just amazed at how relevant the book of Galatians can be to uh, you know something 2,000 years later in a totally different part of the world. I hope you found that it's relevant. I hope you've gotten a lot out of Galatians, and uh, I hope that in reaction to that, you put a lot into the things that, that it's encouraging you to do. And so as we look at a community like Highland, like Bridge Builders, that in hearing these things, hearing these ancient truths as they were, 
that we decide to love one another more, that we decide to pour into our communities more uh, in a selfless way, in a way that, you know, that lifts up other people. And in doing that, we're doing the work of the Spirit. And in fact, the Spirit is doing that work in us. I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope to see you next week. And uh, just love you and uh, love sharing a community with you. And we will see you soon. Bye-bye.